One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Steelers at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, December 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 37 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. This is a poor game environment that should feature a lot of running. Both backfields are timeshares. The pass catchers are all cheap, but are also unlikely to post a tournament-worthy score. This game should be low scoring, but the defenses aren't likely to rack up sacks or turnovers. How Pittsburgh will try to win. The 5-8 Steelers are limping into Week 15 off a close loss to divisional rival Baltimore. The loss all but mathematically eliminates the Steelers from the playoffs and makes Mike Tomlin's first losing season a near lock. As Tomlin eloquently put it in his post-game press conference, there is nothing mystical about it. Although watching the Steelers' offense might make you wish that a pack of fire-breathing dragons would incinerate the field, it's hard to argue with Tomlin's $10 million a year analysis. There is nothing mystical about being bad at your job. The Steelers play at a moderate speed, 13th overall, and don't change much based on the scoreboard. They are middle of the pack when the game is close, 16th situation neutral pace, and play their fastest if they are winning, 8th in pace when leading, and slowest if they are behind, 16th in pace when trailing. The Steelers' splits here don't offer much in the way of tendencies, but serve to further illustrate that the coaching staff is mashing buttons. The Panthers have been below average on the ground, 19th in DVOA, and equally subpar against the pass, 19th in DVOA. The Panthers lack a relative weakness on defense, but the Steelers' coaching staff wouldn't have been looking for one anyway. The problem with Pittsburgh's offense isn't talent. Kenny Pickett is a first-round pick. George Pickens, Najee Harris, Deontay Johnson, Pat Frymuth, and Chase Claypool to start the year are all above-average NFL talents. The Steelers' offensive line was pegged to be a bottom-five unit, but they have overperformed expectations, 18th-ranked by PFF, especially protecting the passer, 8th-ranked in pass-blocking efficiency. The problem with Pittsburgh's offense is the scheme. The Steelers run on first down out of running formations, and they throw on passing downs out of passing formations. They use motion, but it's always pointless. Their wide receiver route trees consist of go routes, slant routes, and curl routes. They rarely use screen passes or misdirection in the running game, and it would be mystical if Tomlin ever drew up a trick play. The offense's biggest advantage is that they know where the ball is going and the defense doesn't, which is something Tomlin never tries to exploit. Expect the Steelers to attack with their usual uncreative, run-balanced style with a beat-the-man-across-from-you mentality that relies on people making plays rather than scheming players into space. How Carolina will try to win. The 5-8 Panthers are a tale straight out of the NFL twilight zone. After starting 1-4, they fired their head coach, started a QB carousel, traded away their wide receiver too, and traded away their best player, all moves that looked to everyone as if they were throwing in the towel for 2022. Since then, the Panthers have found new life. They've won three of their last four games and are sitting only a game behind Tampa Bay in the woeful NFC South. The Panthers finished the year with games against Pittsburgh, Detroit, Tampa Bay, and New Orleans, all winnable games. If the Panthers can take three out of four and one of them is the game against the Bucks, there is a very real chance they can make the playoffs. Sometimes the NFL is truly remarkable, but regardless of how they got here, the Panthers have everything to play for this week. The Panthers generally plod, 21st in overall pace, but they have one of the biggest discrepancies in their halftime splits of any team in the league. They want to play slow, 22nd in situation neutral pace, but quicken if they're behind, 14th in pace when trailing. 
Their tendency to hurry up if they are losing shows up in their pace splits, where they have a large gap in early pace, 31st in the first half, and late pace, 7th in the second half. The Panthers will play slowly for as long as they can, but have the willingness to speed up if they need to score. The Steelers have been adequate against the pass, 16th in DVOA, and strong on the ground, 11th in DVOA. The Panthers have been a smash-mouth team over the past month with an incredible, for a modern team, ratio of 92 carries to 40 pass attempts over their past two wins with Sam Darnold at quarterback. The Panthers are slamming three running backs down teams' throats, and with the Steelers being stronger against the run, it is unlikely to dissuade them from their winning formula. The Panthers have reason to believe they can win the matchup as their O-line has been strong, 5th in adjusted line yards, and also outperformed expectations overall, 11th rated by PFF. The Panthers aren't going to stop doing what has turned their season around unless forced to do so on the scoreboard. Likeliest Game Flow This game opened with a puny total, 38.5, and was quickly bet down a point. The Panthers are slight, 2.5 point, home favorites, giving this game a feel of first to 20 wins. The Panthers should be ahead or close throughout, so there is no reason to think they'll do anything other than play slowly and run. Neither of these offenses is explosive, the Steelers because of the scheme and the Panthers because of talent. This game should feature a lot of running from both sides, with neither team pushing the other to speed up or create big plays. The most likely outcome is a slow game with a lot of field goals and with winner ultimately being determined by which team makes fewer mistakes. Eagles at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, December 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 48.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The Bears are down to dead last in defensive DVOA, ranking 31st against the pass and 29th against the run. The Eagles should have their way in whatever method they choose to attack here, with the obvious caveat that Philadelphia leads the league in first half scoring, but they average just 10.5 points per game in the second half which is largely a nod to their identity, situational play calling, and how dominant they have been to start games. Dallas Goddard was marked for return from IR on Wednesday, opening his 21-day practice window. Head coach Nick Sirianni and Goddard himself have been tight-lipped when it comes to the tight end's expected game day status. Quez Watkins was limited with the same shoulder injury he played through in Week 14. Chase Claypool appears as a DNP for the Bears with a knee injury, although it appears unlikely he will miss Week 15's game. How Philadelphia will try to win. The Eagles rank third in first half pace of play and first in first half scoring, but rank 30th in second half pace of play and 18th in second half scoring this season. That doesn't mean this team turns into a pumpkin at halftime, it's a nod to how aggressive they are, or lack of aggression, when playing with a lead, and they have largely held a significant lead in the second half of games this year. The Eagles also rank first in net points per drive, second in net yards per drive, and second in points per drive, a further indication of the routine positive game environments they found themselves in this season. The expected concentration of the offense depends greatly on whether or not Dallas Goddard returns from IR for Week 15, with no clear indication given from him or the team yet. As in, the best way to describe the Eagles is to compare them to the Jaguars, at least as far as the concentration of weekly volume is concerned. Basically, the Eagles are concentrated from the perspective that very few players see the field, but they lack concentration in the expectation of volume amongst those players. Although Miles Sanders is the unquestioned lead back in this offense, his 60.8% snap rate ranks 17th at the position, and his 12.3 expected fantasy points per game ranks 24th. That said, every primary member of this offense has a legitimate path to ceiling, as we've seen three times now from Sanders due to their elite scoring ability. 
Sanders is also about as close to a yardage and touchdown back as can be, with only 1.8 targets per game. The pure rushing matchup yields a 4.68 net adjusted line yards metric against the Chicago defense allowing a robust 27.7 DK points per game to opposing backfields. Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott both have roles in this offense and have found their way into the end zone on occasion, not to mention the fact that quarterback Jalen Hurts has scored 10 rushing touchdowns this year. Finally, as we saw last week, the ceiling from the majority of the Eagles is unlocked through their opposition keeping the game relatively close into the second half, bringing up some interesting stacking possibilities through optimal theory. A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith have been basically interchangeable from an underlying metric standpoint, with Smith's role shifting to a more short area usage in the absence of Goddard. That has translated to more consistent volume for Smith over the previous four weeks, with eight or nine targets in each game during that span. With Goddard healthy, all of Smith, Goddard, and Brown's targets have been all over the map. All three had been hovering around 20-25% to target market share while Goddard was healthy, which is likely to return once Goddard returns. Quez Watkins would also likely lose some of the short area work he has been seeing in the absence of Goddard, transitioning back to a splash play deep area role. As in, with Goddard back on the field, expect no true alpha with three high-end pass catchers all working in conjunction. Add that discussion to the fact that these pass catchers have had to do the majority of their heavy lifting in the first half, and were left with an immense ceiling with lower than perception floor for the individual pieces of the offense. How Chicago will try to win. The new-look Bears offense understandably took a step backward over the previous two weeks with the shoulder injury to Justin Fields. That said, Fields scored yet another long touchdown on the ground in Week 13, before their Week 14 bye, and was highly efficient through the air until the team's final two drives, two turnovers in opposing territory, completing 20 of 23 passes before the two miscues. Fields now has a rushing score in six consecutive contests and brings massive upside through the air as the offense continues to evolve. Break it all down, however, and this offense goes as Justin Fields goes. Fields is also reportedly dealing with an illness that caused him to miss Wednesday's practice, the severity of which is not yet known. Regardless, expect the Bears to continue tweaking their offense as they work through the things that work and the things that don't, with eyes set squarely on next season. That said, the Bears would do well to avoid long down and distance to go situations in an effort to mute the vaunted pass rush of the Eagles and provide increased exposure to their dynamic run game. Hopefully, for them, that means the continued use of early down passing plays and designed runs through Justin Fields. The Bears' backfield has reverted back to the David Montgomery show in the absence of Khalil Herbert, who remains on injured reserve. Titans castaway Darrington Evans has surprisingly seized control of the change of pace role, with preseason darling Treston Ebner playing only two combined offensive snaps over the previous two weeks. A standard workload for Montgomery, Sands Herbert, is somewhere in the 18-22 to 22 running back opportunity range, with little room for upside beyond that considering their opponent this week. That said, the Eagles are very much a run-funnel defense this season, but the Bears will need to stay ahead of the sticks in order to keep the pass rush at bay. The final piece of the rushing attack is quarterback Justin Fields, who has a touchdown run of at least 55 yards in three of his last four games, which is borderline lunacy. The Packers finally began paying attention to Fields out of the backfield in Week 13 after Fields gashed them for a 55-yard score in the second quarter, holding him to just a handful of yards on the ground in the second half. Again, the Bears would do well to get him out of the pocket on early downs against the Eagles. The pass offense is basically a case of guess who, and who is left standing for us? Darnell Mooney is done for the year, leaving Equinemius St. Brown, Dante Pettis, Chase Claypool, who missed practice Wednesday with an illness, Byron Pringle, and Keel Harry, and Vellis Jones to play roulette for the available wide receiver snaps. 
The only near every down pass catcher is tight end Cole Komet, who has played every offensive snap over the last two weeks. Trevon Wesco missed practice Wednesday with a calf injury, making it likely we see an increased snap rate from third stringer Ryan Griffin in a blocking role. The big picture here, however, is that no wide receiver played more than 65% of the offensive snaps a week ago, and six wide receivers saw work. Woof. Now enter the matchup, which is one of the most difficult through the air in the league. Philadelphia's 4-3 hybrid defense utilizes personnel in varying roles, giving them the flexibility to show different looks during a single set of downs without having to bring different personnel onto the field. When they do mix personnel up front, the veteran presences of Fletcher Cox, Linval Joseph, Javon Hargrave, Hassan Reddick, Kazir White, Josh Sweat, and Indomitian Sue create one, if not the, top fronts in the league, not to mention the elite secondary. Yeah, an embarrassment of riches alert. Likeliest game flow. We can be all but certain the Eagles will find some level of success early in one of the biggest offensive mismatches in the league. Where this game ultimately goes from there is almost entirely up to what the Bears can muster offensively. The thing is, that doesn't come without potential. That leaves this game with a range of outcomes primarily ranging from the Eagles stomp the living daylights out of the Bears and take their foot off the gas in the second half, to, oh snap, the Bears are putting up a fight and forcing the game environment into something worthwhile. That provides very clear paths to attacking this game from a fantasy perspective, in that optimal theory would dictate any exposure be paired with a correlated piece from either side or a game stack. Short and sweet here, with not much else to sway this one in either direction. Chiefs at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, December 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 49 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Texans shocked some people with a close loss to the Cowboys last week, which will likely keep the Chiefs from overlooking them here. The Chiefs are the most aggressive team in the league in terms of passing and tempo, and should have their way with a Texans defense that struggles in all areas. Expect Kansas City to keep their foot on the gas for a while after nearly blowing a 27-point lead to the Broncos in Week 14. Houston's offense is now employing a tactic usually reserved for high school and low-level college teams by using multiple quarterbacks. How Kansas City will try to win. The Chiefs can wrap up the AFC West crown with a win this week against the Texans, who are coincidentally the team with the worst record in the NFL. Patrick Mahomes continues to play at an MVP level, despite a revolving door of skill players around him, and he just torched the Broncos' top-level pass defense to the tune of 352 passing yards and three touchdowns. Jarek McKinnon emerged as a top running back for the Chiefs at the end of last season and into the playoffs, and it appears he may be doing the same thing this year, as he played 57% of the offensive snaps in Week 14 and route to a highly productive day. The team has been playing without Nicole Hardman and Kadarius Toney lately, which may lead many to believe Sky Moore would slip into the gadget wide receiver role and see heavier usage. Instead, it appears the Chiefs have decided to use more of their traditional wide receivers, Juju Smith-Schuster, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Justin Watson, and deploy McKinnon as a receiving back to handle those short area targets and yak opportunities. As for the Chiefs' approach to this game, they have the highest pass rate over expectation, PROE, in the NFL by a relatively large margin, and their current highest usage running back is a receiving game specialist. The Texans' defense is poor in all areas, so the Chiefs can attack them however they would like, and the Chiefs like nothing more than letting Mahomes throw the ball around the yard. Levy Smith's defense notoriously works to prevent passes to the deep and perimeter areas of the field while blitzing at the fourth lowest rate in the league, which funnels things underneath and forces offenses to march down the field rather than taking chunk plays. 
The Chiefs offense is well equipped to attack that type of scheme with Travis Kelsey, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Jarek McKinnon all excelling in those underneath areas, and they will certainly have some things dialed up to attack the seam as well. How Houston will try to win. The Texans' season may be a lost cause, but the coaches and players are still putting up a fight, and they are getting creative to do it. Last week, they almost shocked the NFL as they were a goal-line stand and 98-yard Cowboys drive away from winning a game as a 17-point underdog. One of the wrinkles they threw at Dallas was the 2QB system, which is rarely seen in the NFL, with Davis Mills and Jeff Driscoll taking turns at the helm. Mills operated as a more traditional QB and was very efficient, averaging over 8 yards per pass attempt, while Driscoll was more of a dual-threat QB, passing the ball 6 times and running it 7 times. The Texans' defense also stepped up, forcing three turnovers from the Cowboys' offense to help Houston keep the game within one score for 60 minutes and led for the entire second half until the Cowboys scored with 41 seconds remaining. This week, the Texans will need another resilient, creative, and fortunate effort if they want to keep pace with the second-highest scoring offense in the NFL. After catching the Cowboys unprepared and somewhat off-guard and benefiting from mounting defensive injuries for Dallas, the Texans can expect a more difficult path this week. Ironically, the Chiefs are arguably the most creative offensive team in the league, which can also help them to deal with creative opponents and expose the flaws in the things they are trying to do. Basically, the Texans showed their hand last week, and now opponents can prepare for some of the -the off-the-wall things they did and make it more difficult for Houston to sustain success. The Texans are likely to be without their top three offensive weapons in Damian Pierce, Brandon Cooks, and Nico Collins, which will force them to once again be very creative to move the ball. We should also expect a methodical approach to try and keep Patrick Mahomes off the field, perhaps even getting Jeff Driscoll more involved and leveraging his dual threat ability in more areas than just the red zone. The top running backs for the Texans are Daria Gumbawale and Rex Burkhead, who both specialize in the passing game, while the Chiefs' defense is one of the most giving in the league in receptions to running backs, so I would expect Houston to try and exploit that area as well. Likeliest Game Flow Clearly, the Chiefs are the team most likely to control this game. Also, the results of last week's games are likely to affect how this game is approached and handled if the Chiefs do, in fact, jump out ahead. The Chiefs took a 27-0 lead on the Broncos last week before their defense fell apart and let Denver back in the game, while the Texans showed a ton of fight in their narrow loss to the Cowboys. This makes it likely that the Chiefs will be aggressive early in an attempt to take control and stay aggressive until the game is completely out of reach, likely into the third quarter. The Chiefs play at the fastest situation neutral pace in the league, and the Texans are likely to be forced to throw the ball often, earlier than they would like, due to game script and personnel issues. Ultimately, the game flow here is likely to hinge on how effective the Chiefs' offense can be in the first half, and if they can avoid turnovers that hand the Texans easy points. Given the efficiency with which Kansas City has played this season, and coming off consecutive games where they struggled, season low in passing yards against Cincinnati, followed by three turnovers against Denver, while facing an opponent whose performance last week will keep them from being overlooked, I would expect a very sharp outing from Kansas City from the outset. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Cowboys at Jaguars Kickoff Sunday, December 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Dallas narrowly escaped with a win last week against a lowly Texans team that they appeared to overlook and be ill-prepared for. 
Jacksonville appears to be turning a corner, and Trevor Lawrence is starting to play like the star quarterback he was thought to be when he entered the league. The Dallas defense, particularly their secondary, is battling a plethora of injuries right now. The Cowboys' offense continues to hum, scoring at least 27 points in all six games since Dak Prescott returned from injury. How Dallas will try to win. The Cowboys' offense has been wildly efficient since Dak Prescott's return from injury, scoring 27 or more points in every game and averaging 37.7 points during that stretch. While Dak's presence has spurred this offensive explosion, the Cowboys' offense works first and foremost through their dynamic duo of running backs. During that six-game stretch, Dallas running backs have combined for touchdown counts of 3, 1, 4, 1, 4, and 3. Likewise, Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard have combined for opportunity counts of 37, 36, 35, and 35 since Elliott's return from injury in Week 11. Elliott works as more of a grinder and is the preferred short yardage back, while Pollard is kept fresh and used in more explosive roles and featured a bit more in the passing game, with three games of five-plus targets in his last six appearances. In the passing game, the Cowboys have been very efficient with the exception of last week's multi-interception game from Dak Prescott. C.D. Lamb, Michael Gallup, and Dalton Schultz are all healthy and see the majority of the targets, with their limitations mainly coming from a lack of volume due to the Cowboys building large leads most weeks. This week, Dallas travels to face a Jacksonville team with an emerging offense and a beatable defense. The Jaguars are a middling run defense and a bottom five pass defense by most metrics. The Cowboys are a very good team that has an identity, so it is unlikely they change that identity for a single week like this one, especially when it's not like Jacksonville is unbeatable on the ground. However, there is a spiked possibility of big plays from the Cowboys, as the Jaguars are likely to have to give extra attention to the running game if they want to slow them down. Derrick Henry was destroying this defense in the first half last week before the game script turned and the Jaguars took control of the game, forcing the Titans away from him. The Titans did not have the personnel to fire back and struggled when they became one-dimensional. However, the balanced nature of the Cowboys' offense should make them very difficult for the Jaguars to slow down, and we should expect the Dallas offense to keep humming this week, as they have been. How Jacksonville will try to win Trevor Lawrence has been PFF's number two graded quarterback in the NFL since week nine, as the Jaguars have seemed to find their groove. Jacksonville is 3-2 and two during that stretch, with their losses coming against the AFC-leading Chiefs and the Red Hot Lions. The Jaguars seem to be turning the keys over to Lawrence as well, with their running back usage declining in recent weeks, although that could be attributed slightly to game flow and matchups, as they fell behind early against KC, Baltimore, and Detroit, while last week they played the Titans' pass-funnel defense. This week, against the Cowboys, we should expect the Jaguars to be aggressive from the outset, against an offense that they have to know they will need to score a lot of points to beat. The Jaguars' defense has given up 20-plus points in 8 straight games, and 27-plus in 3 of their last 4 and they are now going up against one of the hottest offenses in the league. The Cowboys' secondary is starting to show vulnerability due primarily to injuries. They have lost two of their top cornerbacks to injury, while starting safety Jaron Curse is battling issues of his own. Dallas also just lost star defensive tackle Jonathan Hankins for the regular season, and both of its starting defensive ends are on the injury report as well. Make no mistake, Dallas has the number one DVOA defense in the league by football outsiders, but they are more vulnerable than they appear on paper and facing a young, ascending quarterback this week. The Cowboys have struggled to stop the run at times this season, so I would expect the Jaguars to try to get Travis Etienne more involved early than he has been in recent weeks. However, the Dallas offense is too good and explosive for a fully conservative approach on offense, and I would also expect Doug Peterson to give Trevor Lawrence the chance to let it rip relatively early in this game. 
the biggest issue for passing games against the Cowboys is usually dealing with their elite pass rush. But Jacksonville has PFF's number four graded pass blocking unit, which should give Lawrence enough time to try to exploit a secondary that is quietly becoming dangerously thin. Likeliest game flow. The Cowboys are the team that is most likely to take control of this game, as their offense has been consistent and explosive this season, and Jacksonville's defense is very beatable, as they have shown many times in recent weeks. The Cowboys build their offense around their running game, but they still play aggressively and with tempo, as they have the fourth fastest situation neutral and seconds per snap tempo in the NFL. Jacksonville may try to exploit the Cowboys' run defense early in this game, but should understand that points are a priority this week. I would expect them to be aggressive from the outset, while giving Lawrence the opportunity to make another statement win on his sophomore season redemption tour. Remember when people were writing him off as a bust? Especially after an embarrassing performance last week, I would expect the Dallas offense to come out sharp in this game and score points early. Given the elite level that Lawrence has been playing at, and the quality of pass protection, scheme, and weapons at his disposal, I would expect the Jaguars to be able to produce despite the difficult matchup, giving this game the potential for explosive scoring. Lions at Jets. Kickoff Sunday, December 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44.5. Game Overview. By high-low. Another game with desperation on both sides. To be fair, the Lions have been in desperation mode for the better part of the past six weeks. The Jets fell out of the seventh playoff spot after sitting comfy for the first 12 weeks, while the Lions have played themselves back into playoff contention by ripping off five wins in their last six games, the only loss coming by three points to the Bills. The dreaded illness tag is making its way through the Lions organization now, with Michael Brockers, Aiden Hutchinson, and Jason Cabinda held out of practice on Thursday due to the bug. Corey Davis has yet to practice this week while in the league's concussion protocol. It appears as if he is headed for a missed contest here. One of the things to watch as the week draws to a close is the respective statuses of Quinnen Williams and Aiden Hutchinson, each of whom missed practice Thursday and are staples in the center of their respective defensive lines. How Detroit will try to win. The Lions have been more two-faced than any team this season, leading the league in scoring over the first month of play, falling from grace for the middle of the year, and then putting on an absolute clinic over the last six weeks, winning five of those games. Furthermore, they have averaged an absurd 31.2 points per game at Ford Field, which leads the league, and a putrid 18.4 points per game on the road. For comparison, the Eagles now lead the league in points per game at 29.7, and the Titans rank 26th in scoring at 18.5 per game. Yeah, the Lions are the Eagles, or the Chiefs at home, and the Titans on the road. Wowzers. And oh no, they play on the road this week. Better bet the unders. As opposed to thinking there's something in the water up there in Detroit, might the poor numbers on the road be deflated by the goose egg they put up in week 5 against the Patriots? Or maybe the 6 points they mustered the following week in Dallas? I'd think so, considering the Lions have played only 5 road games so far this year. They averaged a more than solid 28.67 points per game in their other 3 road games. So maybe, just maybe, those numbers are more matchup specific than they are home road splits. Jared Goff has seen his pass attempts swing wildly this season, but has averaged 39 per game over the previous three weeks in varying game environments, which plays a bit into the desperation narrative as the Lions appear to not be resting on their laurels, putting games away through aggression in the process. The changing dynamics of the Detroit offense have not saved the backfield, which now operates in a somewhat maddening three-way, nearly even timeshare. Noback has seen more than 51% of the offensive snaps over the previous three weeks, with all of Jamal Williams, DeAndre Swift, and Justin Jefferson playing at least 21% in each of those games. 
Williams operates as the primary early down and short yardage back, with Swift mixing in on early downs and sharing passing downs with Jackson, the latter of whom will also mix in change of pace snaps. It's like a game of Twister, this backfield, I tell you what. And while I'll continue with interest in Swift at his depressed price point, even after he cost me a milli sweat last week, do you even bias, bro? The fact that he's seen 31 to 36% snap rates in four of the previous five games has to give at least some level of concern. Those snap rates are particularly confusing when you consider that he was off the final injury report in only one game during that time that he saw more than 36% of the offensive snaps, 51% in week 13, but then came back down to 31% while off the injury report in week 14. Shots shall be taken here, particularly considering the Jets have a stout run defense, but utilize primary zone coverages that are susceptible to running backs through the air. The pure rushing matchup yields a perfectly average 4.39 net adjusted line yards metric. DJ Chark continued his wide receiver 2 usage and snap rate against the Vikings last week, his second consecutive game above 84% of the offensive snaps. He went on to put up at least 94 yards and a touchdown in each of those games, operating as the primary downfield threat in this sneakily favorable pass offense. As we touched on above, the Lions have thrown caution to the wind over the previous three weeks, averaging 39 pass attempts per game during that span and, more importantly, generating their own aggression without waiting to react to the game environment. It's almost as if the staff realize their defense is trash and they have to score points to win. Weird. That leaves Amon Ross St. Brown and Chark as the near-every-down pass catchers, with Josh Reynolds relegated to a secondary role. Reynolds is the player whose snap rate and involvement is most closely tied to the amount of heavy sets the Lions choose to incorporate on a weekly basis, meaning he should see fluctuating snap rates between 60 and 80% for the remainder of the season, save another injury to a Detroit pass catcher. The matchup through the air is hashtag not good, but that matters less in games of true desperation, as we have here. As in, expect the Lions to continue attacking relentlessly as they hunt to save their season, with two primary pass-catching options that can do quick damage in St. Brown and Chark. Finally, expect the three-man rotation at tight end to continue, with Brock Wright, James Mitchell, and Shane Zilstra likely combining for close to 100% of the offensive snaps. As in, the Lions aren't utilizing much 12 personnel recently, and instead getting their heavy personnel packages through the use of fullback Jason Cabinda. How New York will try to win. Speaking of the desperation factor, Mike White has made three consecutive starts for the Jets, and has pass attempt values as follows, 28 in a lopsided victory over the Bears, 57 in a narrow defeat at the hands of the Vikings, and 44 in a one-possession loss to the Bills in Week 14. He has passed for a massive 952 yards in those three games, tossing all three of his touchdowns in the first start against the Bears. For perspective, the last two Mike White starts were the highest pass rate over expectation values for the Jets this season. Furthermore, the Jets have appeared to alter their offensive personnel alignments with the change at quarterback, running exactly zero snaps in either of those two games from 21 personnel and cutting their 12 personnel usage by 30%, opening up additional snaps for Elijah Moore in the process. That's particularly interesting considering Corey Davis has yet to practice this week as he works his way through the league's concussion protocol, likely indicating a missed contest is on the horizon. More on this in a bit. And finally, from a macro perspective, the Jets had just one game over league average in offensive snaps with Zach Wilson at quarterback and have been at or above league average in all three of Mike White's starts. As touched on above, the Jets have moved away from the dreaded three-headed timeshare over the last two weeks, eliminating a variable in the process. With a healthy Michael Carter last week, 
That translated to a near-even split in snaps between Carter and rookie Zonovan Knight, although Knight saw 19 running back opportunities to just 11 for Carter, though six of those were targets. At this point, it's safe to project Knight for the primary early down role with some passing work mixed in, and Carter as the primary passing down back, leaving additional room for upside in Knight's profile. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.27 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Lions defense that has suddenly, and violently, cracked down on opposing backfields, yielding just 13.24 DK points per game to opposing backs over the previous seven games. It appears as if we have an insane pass-funnel defensive matchup setting up here. If the Lions are one of the most pass-funnel defenses, and if the Jets have increased their aerial aggression with Mike White at quarterback, shh, hear that? That's the sound of fantasy goodness slapping you in the face. The shift away from heavy personnel sets increased Elijah Moore's snap rate all the way up to 82% last week. With Garrett Wilson playing the only every-down role for the Jets, that leaves Denzel Mims likeliest to fill in on the perimeter should Corey Davis be unable to make it through the league's concussion protocol in time to play. Again, yet to practice in any capacity through Thursday. Pass-catching tight end Ty Conklin should continue in his 70-80% snap rate role, leaving an approximately 40-50% snap rate for blocking tight end C.J. Ozama. Opposing quarterbacks against the Lions over the last month of play, listed from most recent, are as follows. Kirk Cousins, 425-2 through the air. Trevor Lawrence in a beatdown, 179-1. Josh Allen, 253-2. And and Daniel freaking Jones, only game over 228 passing yards this season, 341-1. Nom noms. Most notably, Garrett Wilson and Elijah Moore combined for 17 targets on 44 Mike White pass attempts a week ago, and cost a combined 9600 in salary this week. Even Ty Conklin has seen 15 targets over the previous two weeks in this now YOLO offense, and the Lions have allowed the second-most touchdowns to opposing tight ends this year. 8. Likeliest Game Flow This game feels a bit more desperation-y than the rest on this slate, with each of these teams knowing they have a legitimate shot at the postseason, yet currently residing out of the playoff picture in their respective conferences. I think that is amplified by the fact that these are cross-conference opponents in that they know they have to take care of business and get some help to improve their respective playoff pictures this week. We also have a case of increasing aggression from each team over the previous weeks, culminating in a massive eruption of offense. Okay, just had to pinch myself there a bit. But seriously, this game has all the pieces that we look for to identify potential upside. Two offenses increasing their aggression and dialing up additional passes, two teams fighting tooth and nail to stay alive in their respective playoff races, and two teams that don't know each other all too well being from different conferences. There's really no point in trying to identify the likeliest scenario in this one, as anything from a true slugfest in the cold to a massive shootout is on the table here. Not only that, but each pass offense is expected to be highly concentrated, the Lions because that's what they've shown us recently, and the Jets due to the concussion to Corey Davis and each offense has shifted to primarily playing from 11 personnel over the previous weeks. I'm giddy about this one, folks. The Falcons at the Saints kick off Sunday, December 18th at 2 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo The Falcons went into their bye week knowing they would be making the change from Marcus Mariota to Desmond Ritter giving them a full two weeks to prepare their new quarterback for action. That said, the situation with Mariota has been a distraction as he reportedly just ghosted the team once he found out about his benching. 
he has since been placed on injured reserve. Neither of these teams has been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, which speaks to the state of the NFC South. That said, both need a win this week to keep that pipe dream alive. Desperation factor? Engaged. Chris Olave and Drake London have been nothing short of remarkable in their rookie seasons, largely limited by the design of their respective offenses, and maybe some quarterback play thrown in there. How Atlanta will try to win While we know how the Falcons have tried to win this season, second lowest pass rate, second lowest pass rate over expectation, and below average pass rate over expectation in every game played this season, We do have some uncertainties introduced through the change at quarterback. Rookie third-round quarterback Desmond Ritter will be making the first start of his career, which basically comes in a win-or-go-home game for the Falcons. And while their offensive tendencies are highly unlikely to flip on their heads, we at least have to acknowledge that there could be some surprises here. Ritter has some rushing upside to his fantasy profile as well, having rushed for 957 yards and 12 touchdowns over his final two years at Cincinnati. That said, his mobility is more escapability when compared to the more elite rushing upside of Jalen Hurts or Justin Fields. While Ritter's pocket presence was a plus at the collegiate level, that tends to be one of the areas that takes rookie quarterbacks longer to adjust to, as the speed at the NFL is a different animal altogether. Finally, Ritter lacks the top-level arm strength to make some tight window throws, and his downfield ability sometimes suffers. Considering everything laid out, I would expect an offense designed to minimize mistakes and ease Ritter into the fold, with heavy rush rates, designed short-area throws based on timing, and an effort to keep from getting behind the sticks. Lead back Corderell Patterson missed four games in the middle of the season, returning for Week 9. Since that time, he has played more than 49% of the offensive snaps just once, peaking at 58% in Week 12. For comparison, he played 59-65% to in his three fully healthy games to start the year. What we've seen since his return is a two-headed backfield that works in conjunction with fullback Keith Smith, with Tyler Algier matching or beating Patterson in snap rate, as has been the case in all but one game since Patterson's return. Patterson has been between 11 and 16 running back opportunities in four of five games back, with Algier seeing 9 to 11 opportunities in each contest. Mariota typically only carried the ball five to seven times, meaning Patterson and Algier could see a slight decrease in workload with the more mobile Ritter at quarterback. Realistically, the range of work we've seen from the duo over the previous five games is likely to remain rather static moving forward with Ritter potentially taking on slightly more rushing work than Mariota did while starting. The matchup on the ground yields a well-above-average 4.655 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Saints defense seeding 4.46 yards per carry and 22.1 DK points per game to opposing backfields. Of note, the Saints don't blitz a lot, 16.6%, but play some of the highest rates of man coverage in the league, which has made them susceptible to mobile quarterbacks. Rookie wide receiver Drake London ranks 8th in targets per route run rate, 10th in team target market share, and 1st in average cushion, a measure of how far off a defender is playing the pass catcher. 
Due to the nature of the Falcons' offense, opposing teams have utilized zone coverages against Atlanta at the highest rate in the league, like a stupid high 83.1% of the time, which is important considering London currently holds PFF's 12th highest grade against zone coverage this season amongst wide receivers with 10 or more targets. The only thing holding this dude back is an offense that has averaged a paltry 23.1 pass attempts per game this season. London is joined by veteran role wide receiver Olamide Zacchaeus as the only pass catchers to play nearly every offensive snap on this offense, with Damian Bird, the preferred wide receiver three, and tight end snap split amongst Parker Hess, McCall Pruitt, and Anthony Fersker since Kyle Pitts was shut down for the season. Zacchaeus has one game all season over five targets, while no Atlanta tight end has seen more than three targets without Pitts, as in this pass offense is a case of London or bust? How New Orleans will try to win. For how poorly and conservatively New Orleans started the season, they've become victims of desperation over the previous three games. During that stretch, New Orleans has been at or above league average in pass rate over expectation in every game after not a single game over league average during their first 11 games. While that hasn't been fully realized in the box scores, Andy Dalton has attempted only 29, 28, and 25 passes during that run, the offense has been more forward-leaning than in recent past. The low pass numbers have been a product of the offense running only 57.6 offensive plays per game during that span, about six snaps below the league average, about one less possession than the average offense this season. Furthermore, their last three opponents all rank in the top half of the league in defensive DVOA, San Francisco, Tampa Bay, and Los Angeles Rams, whereas the Falcons rank 30th. While not necessarily a signal or indication of potential upside, this discussion will become more important when we examine the likeliest game flow. Running back Mark Ingram was placed on injured reserve following the team's Week 14 game and will miss the rest of the regular season, leaving only journeyman veteran David Johnson, practice squad, Dwayne Washington, missed practice Wednesday with an illness, and 2022's version of an in-season journeyman, Inyo Benjamin, on the roster behind Alvin Kamara. Kamara has snuck into the top spot in team snap share and ranks sixth in opportunity share, ranks third in team target market share amongst running backs, and is in a rout at the second highest rate amongst running backs this season, but his efficiency has suffered dearly. His 3.8 yards per carry ranks 58th, and his 5.1 yards per touch, inflated by his receiving work, ranks 19th. That said, you'd be hard-pressed to find another running back on this slate with as many expected fantasy points at his price. As in, it doesn't exist. He carries the fourth highest mean projection and is priced more than $1,000 lower than the three above him. The matchup on the ground yields an elite 4.695 net adjusted line yards metric against a bottom five run defense. For all the hype I just laid on Drake London on the other side of this game, Chris Olave comes close to or beats. His 28.8% targets per route run ranks 10th. His 25.8% team target market share ranks 17th. He ranks 3rd in deep targets, 6th in air yards, 5th in air yard share, and 7th in average depth of target. His overall numbers have been held down by a conservative offense throughout the season, with Andy Dalton attempting more than a modest 32 passes only once all season. Jameis Winston was at 34 or more in every start, but only played the first three weeks of the season. 
Another issue for Olave is that he is playing far fewer snaps than your typical wide receiver one, with only a 75.6% snap rate this season. Rashid Shahid has emerged as the team's wide receiver two over the previous three games, but is typically held to 50 or 60% snap rates in that role, while Jarvis Landry continues to operate as the slot wide receiver in a similar snap rate role. Tight end Juwan Johnson returned to a limited practice on Wednesday with his ankle injury, and I tentatively expect him to return this week. Johnson should combine with Adam Troutman for the full complement of snaps on an offense running elevated rates of 12 personnel, a tad bit misleading due to Taysom Hill's queen chess piece usage all over the formation, who is listed as a tight end on the official depth chart. The matchup through the air is far from daunting against a Falcons defense that would have trouble stopping a sneeze. Likeliest Game Flow Neither of these teams are likely to press the issue on their own, meaning this game flow and environment are highly likely to be muted, requiring some outside force to jolt one or the other into increased aggression. Whether or not that outside jolt is the fact that the loser of this game is eliminated from playoff contention remains to be seen, but the truth of the matter is each of these teams needs a win this week to keep any fleeting playoff hopes alive. The good thing when you get two desperate teams playing is only one of them is typically required to make that leap in aggression, but the likeliest scenario here is for each team to take a more conservative approach to try to win this game. That said, each team theoretically has pieces that can break the game open, primarily Corderell Patterson and Drake London in Atlanta, and Alvin Kamara, maybe, Chris Olave, and Rashid Shahid in New Orleans. As we've discussed previously, oftentimes it's an individual effort that ignites a game as opposed to one of the teams from a macro perspective. And both teams have players that can do that. All of that to say, this game carries a wide range of outcomes with respect to the ultimate game environment, albeit with a slugfest as the likeliest scenario. I can't pretend to know enough to assign a percentage solution for that range, as in how likely a singular outcome is on the wide range of outcomes, but suffice it to say the field might not notice the upside present from two teams playing under desperation. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Cardinals at the Broncos. Kick off Sunday, December 18th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern. With an over-under of 37. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Arizona will be starting backup quarterback Colt McCoy, while Denver could also be relying on their backup, Brett Ripon. Both teams are out of the playoff hunt with nothing but pride left to play for. Denver's defense has been stout this season, especially against non-elite opponents. Arizona is playing on a short week after losing on Monday night to the Patriots. How Arizona will try to win The Cardinals will start Colt McCoy at quarterback after losing star quarterback Kyler Murray to a torn ACL on Monday night against the Patriots. McCoy has started two games already this season, beating the Rams and getting dominated by the 49ers. This week, he will get the task of facing a Broncos defense that has held their opponent under 20 points in 9 of 13 games. The Cardinals' offense is also without Zach Ertz and Rondale Moore, who are both on IR. DeAndre Hopkins, Marquise Brown, and James Conner are left as the headliners for Arizona at the skill positions, 
and we can expect most of the offense to flow through these three. James Conner has been used as a bell cow recently, and we can expect a similar approach this week as the Cardinals are on the road against one of the top three pass defenses in the league that is much more beatable on the ground. When the Cardinals do turn to the air, we can expect Hopkins and Brown to be heavily featured. In McCoy's first two starts, Marquise Brown was out, but Hopkins plus Moore combined for 19 receptions in the first game, while Hopkins plus Greg Dortch combined for 18 receptions in the second game. Brown is a full-time player, and I would expect him and Hopkins to be targeted a large percentage of the time that Arizona does take to the air. Again, the Broncos' defense is much more beatable on the ground, and their offense has struggled all season, regardless of the quarterback, making it likely that Arizona plays things close to the vest against a tough opponent on the road for as long as they can. How Denver Will Try to Win The Broncos' offense finally came alive in Week 14 with their highest-scoring output of the season, 28 points, which was only the second time all year they scored more than 20 points. In classic 2022 Broncos fashion, however, the optimism for a late-season offensive rejuvenation was spoiled by Wilson leaving with a concussion. The Broncos have been middle-of-the-pack in tempo and pass rate this season. Their issue has just been a stunning lack of efficiency. This week, they face a Cardinals defense that was strong for a stretch this season, but has given up 30 points per game over the last three weeks, and is playing on the road on a short week. The Cardinals defense is equally beatable through the air and on the ground, while having a scheme that generally limits deep and perimeter production in the passing game, and tends to funnel things to the short and intermediate areas of the field. Denver has relied on its strong defense for the majority of the season, and facing a backup quarterback on a short week, we should expect a conservative approach again in this matchup. Likeliest Game Flow Neither team is particularly creative or aggressive offensively by nature, and with questions surrounding the quarterbacks on both sides, there is zero reason to believe those tendencies would change as they enter this game. Even if Russell Wilson is cleared, he has played very poorly for most of this season and will have missed most of the week's practices and can't be counted on for efficiency. Both teams will likely be very comfortable playing conservatively as well due to the fact that they won't really be scared of the other team's offense. Both teams are around the league average and situation neutral pace of play, so it isn't likely there is anything that points to a surge in play volume either. The most likely outcome is a defensive battle that consists of a lot of field goals, as Denver's defense is strong enough to keep teams out of the red zone even when they give up long drives, and Arizona's defense does a great job preventing explosive plays while Denver has shown an inability all season to sustain offense. The Patriots at the Raiders kick off Sunday, December 18th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This game is highlighted by the matchup of head coaches, with Bill Belichick facing longtime Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels. The Patriots are currently the number 7 seed in the AFC playoff picture, while the Raiders have squandered their postseason hopes by blowing winnable games. New England's offense relies heavily on its backfield, which is currently riddled with injuries. The Raiders may be getting back one or both of Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro from injured reserve this week. How New England will try to win 
The Patriots are currently in the thick of the AFC wildcard hunt, with a 7-6 record despite a very turbulent season, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. The Patriots are built to win on the back of their defense, which Football Outsiders ranks as the number 3 DVOA defense in the NFL, while hoping their 25th ranked offense just doesn't screw it up. As the Patriots' offense has looked underwhelming and overmatched this year, many people have tried to figure out where the blame lies. They have an offensive coordinator who has been a defensive coach for the last 15 years prior to 2022. Mac Jones has looked lost often, and Bill Belichick has not exactly loaded his team up with talent at the skill positions. The truth is that all of those issues contribute to their struggles, though the play calling and scheme are the things that are probably most easily addressed at this point in the season. Luckily for the Patriots, this week they face a Raiders defense that ranks 31st in the NFL through 14 weeks by Football Outsiders DVOA. Last week, the Raiders blew a two-score lead late in the fourth quarter against an even worse offense than New England's, the Rams who had a quarterback that had joined the team two days before the game. The Patriots' offense has had its share of struggles this year, but they have shown the ability to put up points against poor defenses. Consider the fact that the Patriots have played six games against defenses currently ranked in the bottom ten in the NFL in defensive DVOA. In those six games, the Patriots are averaging 26.3 points per game. In their other seven games, they are averaging 16.9 points per game. Those two numbers are the equivalent of the 6th and 29th ranked scoring offenses in the league. In short, the Patriots are a good offense when facing bad defenses and a bad offense when facing good defenses. The Patriots' offense generally focuses on their running backs and short area passing, but Bill Belichick is notorious for game plans that attack opponents' weaknesses. Just a couple of weeks ago on Thanksgiving, Mac Jones set a season high in pass attempts as the Patriots had a 75% pass rate against a Vikings defense that profiles very similarly to the Raiders, middle of the pack against the run while being awful against the pass. Both of the top two running backs for the Patriots are battling injuries, as Ramondre Stevenson is looking unlikely to play and Damian Harris is slowly coming back from a thigh issue which increases the likelihood that the Patriots will employ a similar game plan to the one they took to Minnesota when they nearly beat a very good Vikings team. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders, at 5-8, and eight, have managed to lose seven games by one possession while blowing several multiple-score and or fourth-quarter leads. On one hand, they've been competitive with everyone they've faced this year. On the other hand, it has been a startling lack of late execution and meltdowns that have been on display all season. Technically, the Raiders are still alive for a playoff berth, but they will almost certainly need to win out if they are going to have a chance. This week, they need to find a way to finish the game against a Patriots team that is currently sitting in the 7th AFC playoff spot that the Raiders are chasing. The Patriots are playing on a short week and have some injury issues, so the table is set for Las Vegas to keep itself in the mix this week. The Raiders' offense has been incredibly concentrated over the last couple of months, with Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs combining for 67% or more of the Raiders' offensive usage during a five-game stretch, prior to a dip in usage on a short week when they combined for only 62% of the offense's opportunities. 
That strategy has worked well for the Raiders, but this week presents a unique challenge as the Patriots have a very good run defense that could contain Jacobs. And Patriots head coach Bill Belichick is notorious for going to great lengths to take away an opponent's best weapon. Devontae Adams has shredded man coverage this season, and the Patriots play man at one of the highest rates in the NFL. But if the Patriots deploy two players to Adams or take some other measures, they could certainly hold him down. The Patriots were shredded by Justin Jefferson a few weeks ago, but the Vikings have far more weapons that kept them from selling out on it. Ideally, the Raiders would get Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro back from injured reserve this week, as that would make it much tougher on New England to throw the kitchen sink at Adams. Waller and Renfro both return to practice this week and are eligible to return. The Raiders' offense is in a tough spot this week, but certainly has paths to overcome it. If Waller and or Renfro can return to the lineup, it would increase the chances of success for the offense as a whole. Likeliest Game Flow in a battle of wits between mentor and student, there is a high degree of volatility around this game. The Patriots are likely to attack the Raiders' area of weakness with an aggressive pass rate that we rarely see from them. The Raiders' offense has been conservative early in many games this year, and we could see a slow start from them this week as well, with the coaching chess match advantage seemingly likely to tilt toward the Patriots. With that in mind, the Patriots are the team that seems most likely to take an early lead. However, the Patriots' offense is lacking in explosiveness, and their defense is solid enough that it seems unlikely this game would quickly move into shootout mode. The best chances of a high-scoring affair breaking out would be the Patriots gradually building a lead in the first half as they pick on a porous Raiders secondary, and the Raiders being forced to open things up and attack downfield. The Raiders' secondary has been so bad this year that it seems pretty unlikely this game is low-scoring on the Patriots' end. As alluded to earlier, there is some risk of systematic failure for the Raiders if their injury situation doesn't improve. It is very hard to believe Belichick will sit back on this one and let the Raiders put up points while running two-thirds of their offense through only two players. The Titans at the Chargers kick off Sunday, December 18th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both offenses should be licking their chops entering this week as the opposing defense's clear weakness is their preferred method of attack. The Titans are reeling as they have lost three straight games, the last two of which have been by two-plus touchdowns. The Chargers have not won consecutive games since week 4 through 6, and last week's win over the Dolphins was their first over a team that currently has a winning record. These teams could not possibly be more different in terms of offensive approach and philosophy. How Tennessee will try to win The Titans appeared to be strolling through their season to another easy AFC South crown and high playoff seed until the wheels came off over the last three weeks. Now sitting at 7-6, and six, the Titans have opened the door for the Jaguars, who they play one more time, and will almost certainly end up as the bottom seed of the division winners if they are able to hold on. The biggest issue for the Titans during this downstretch has been their pass defense, which was absolutely shredded by Jalen Hurts and Trevor Lawrence the last two weeks. 
Likewise, the Titans prefer a run-heavy approach, and their personnel needs positive game scripts to be effective. So their struggling defense has made it nearly impossible for them to control games lately. Luckily for the Titans, their offense has the perfect matchup this week. The Chargers' defense is ranked 32nd in the NFL in yards per carry allowed to opposing running backs, and 28th in the NFL in PFF tackling grade. The Titans will almost certainly look to lean heavily on Derrick Henry in this matchup and pummel the Chargers on the ground. The emergence of rookie tight end Chagosium Okonkwo should also increase the amount of two tight end personnel the Titans deploy early in this game as they look to get their best players on the field and use heavy packages to attack the Chargers' weakness. Henry was on track for a monster game last week before the game script got away from the Titans, and he only received a few second-half carries. Henry had a 200-yard game on the ground earlier this season against the Texans' run defense that is similarly inept to the Chargers, and we should expect the Titans' coaching staff to give him every chance to do something similar this week. How Los Angeles will try to win on the opposite end of the spectrum from the Titans are the Chargers. The Titans rank 29th in the NFL in pass rate and 32nd in situation-neutral pace of play, while the Chargers rank 1st in both categories. Facing a Titans pass defense that has been absolutely destroyed over the last two weeks, the Chargers' approach here should be very clear. Both Jalen Hurts, 380 yards, and Trevor Lawrence, 368, set their season highs in passing yards against the Titans over the last two weeks as the Titans' defensive injuries mount and their top-notch run defense encourages opponents to air it out. The Chargers' receiving core is also the healthiest it has been all season, with Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Gerald Everett, and Josh Palmer all finally appearing to be at full strength. This is a perfect storm for the Chargers' passing game, as they have a plus matchup and every reason to try to be aggressive from the outset. They also have an elite running back in the passing game, Austin Eckler, to leverage underneath if the Titans play soft defenses to prevent explosive plays. The Titans blitz at one of the lowest rates in the league, instead dropping many players into coverage. And we should expect the Chargers to use a lot of swing passes and short-to-intermediate area crossing concepts to exploit them in ways similar to how the Eagles and Jaguars picked them apart. There isn't a lot more to dig into here, as this game so clearly sets up in a specific way for the Chargers, and they have a full arsenal of receivers to spread the ball to against an overmatched opponent. Likeliest Game Flow as mentioned earlier, these teams have differing philosophical approaches, so the Chargers will want to take an early lead with the hopes of forcing the Titans into a suboptimal game script and not allowing them to lean on their strength while attacking the Chargers' weakness. Both offenses are likely to experience success early in this game, and both teams have the ability to break off explosive plays. If the Titans were to take a lead, it would not alter the plans of the already pass-heavy Chargers' offense. Conversely, if the Chargers were to be able to take an early lead, it would put the Titans in quite a bind as they would be forced to be more aggressive through the air and play at a faster tempo, playing right into the strengths of the Chargers. We should expect a game with multiple paths to be high scoring and logical stories of how each team will react to any game script. The Chargers have the advantage as the home team and are less dependent on how the start of the game goes, which is reflected in the game's spread. I would expect an efficient outing from both offenses as they leverage their strengths against their opponent's weaknesses, 
with the Chargers likely finding success moving the ball through the air, and Derrick Henry potentially breaking off some long runs. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bengals at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, December 18th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Bengals' passing game has a tough on-paper matchup that gets even tougher depending on injury situations. The Bucks' defense has allowed only three teams this season to surpass Cincinnati's implied team total for this week. Tom Brady has thrown 40-plus passes in 10 of his last 11 games. The Bengals' defense has been solid but not outstanding against both the run and the pass, making them a neutral matchup for opposing offenses to pick their poison against. How Cincinnati will try to win The Bengals are tied for the AFC North division lead with the Ravens as the season enters the home stretch. Cincinnati has a tough path ahead as all four of their remaining opponents would be in the playoffs if they started today. The Bengals are also facing some health issues that could cause some issues during this tough stretch, as three of their top four receiving options, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and Hayden Hurst, are all battling some ailments that put their availability and effectiveness in question. The Bengals started this season slowly, with a 4-4 record through Week 8, but have rattled off five straight victories. 7-1 in their last eight, and appear to be comfortably on their way to a playoff berth if they can overcome their mounting injuries and win even a game or two down the stretch. The Bengals did get Joe Mixon back from his concussion last week, and their backfield operated in a 60-40 timeshare, with Sama J. Pirine taking most of the third down work and mixing in for many other situations as well. As you would expect, the status of so many key elements of the offense will likely have a big impact on how the Bengals approach this game. Hurst sounds unlikely to play this week, while Boyd and Higgins are day-to-day with finger and hamstring injuries, respectively. Boyd's injury sounds like a pain tolerance and effectiveness issue. Can he catch the ball the way he needs to while recovering? Meanwhile, Higgins had a hamstring injury he was dealing with all last week that he aggravated in pregame warm-ups. That type of injury can tend to linger, and even gets worse if you don't let it have proper rest. My early hunch is Boyd will play and Higgins will sit, as the Bengals will want to make sure they have Higgins down the stretch and into the playoffs. The Bengals have the third highest pass rate over expectation in the NFL, and against a stout Bucks defense, they will have to be creative if shorthanded. Given the effectiveness and skill sets of their running back duo, both are strong in the receiving game, it would make sense for them to get both backs more involved in the passing game and funnel things through that part of their offense, while their receiving core is less than full strength. Jamar Chase will obviously get a healthy dose of targets, but facing a very strong pass defense, the Bengals will likely try to leverage their running back talent depth in this matchup. How Tampa Bay will try to win The Bucks are somehow a division leader through 14 weeks of the NFL season, despite a losing record and ranking 28th in the NFL in scoring. This isn't new information to anyone who is paying attention, and I know we keep harping on this every week, but the fall of the Bucks' offense this season has been truly remarkable. 
In Tom Brady's first two years in Tampa, the Bucs scored 23 or more points in 34 of their 40 games, playoffs included. This season, the Bucs have scored under 23 points in 12 of 13 games. Many people were quick to blame the offensive line for these struggles early in the season due to injuries and departures. But the Bucs have the best adjusted sack rate by Football Outsiders and PFF's number 6 graded pass-blocking unit, which makes it tough for me to buy that as the issue. The bigger concerns have been a lack of running game and hardly any explosive plays. Those two things are likely correlated, as the lack of a consistent running threat makes it easy for defenses to play lighter personnel, more defensive backs, and drop more players into coverage without worry of being punished up front. That tactical situation and the fact that everyone in the Bucks' passing game is aging and or returning from injuries have left them neutered from the potent, efficient attack we saw in the past. As for how Tampa Bay will approach this week's matchup, Tom Brady has attempted 40-plus passes in 10 of his last 11 games, yet he has not had a 300-yard game since Week 8 and has not thrown for three touchdown passes since Week 4. Ironically, the one game that Brady did not throw 40-plus times was by far his most efficient game this season. The Bucks' passing game is primarily focused on the short and intermediate areas of the field, with their running backs heavily involved, as they have arguably the worst running game in the league. This Bengals defense has been playing very well the last three weeks, holding the Titans and Browns to 26 combined points while doing a tremendous job on Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, holding him to his worst game of the season. If they can handle the Chiefs, I would expect them to hold up well against the Bucks. The Bengals' defense is a neutral matchup against both the run and the pass, leading to opponents primarily attacking them in whatever manner is most comfortable for them. For the Bucks at this point, this is clearly the short area passing game. We should expect a pass-heavy game plan that is not overly aggressive, as the Bucks rely on their defense to give them a chance, which is pretty much the approach we see from Tampa every week at this point. Likeliest Game Flow as explored earlier, the Bucks have scored 23 or more points only once this season, and even that game required them to be in catch-up mode for nearly three quarters. Their first-half offense has been very poor, scoring over 10 first-half points only once in their last eight games, while managing only three total first-half points over their last two games. Meanwhile, the Bengals' offensive injuries and a road matchup with a very good defense make it unlikely that Cincinnati is able to shoot out of the gate and put up a bunch of first-half points. This means that both teams should be able to operate in their preferred methods for at least the first half and well into the third quarter. Tampa Bay will have a pass-heavy but conservative game plan that is unlikely to be efficient or explosive, while the Bengals will play primarily through Jamar Chase and their running backs. The Bengals' offense seems to always find a way to score, as they have failed to score 20 points only once in their last eight games, while the Bucks' offense seems to always find a way not to score. This makes it likely that the Bengals will gradually build a lead and their fourth-ranked red zone offense leads to a good probability of them turning their drives into touchdowns. This game is likely to resemble the relative low-scoring and grinded-out types of games that we have seen consistently from the Bucks this season, with the obvious caveat that Jamar Chase is capable of going ballistic in any matchup, especially when given the huge volume we should expect this week.